The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to The Waves for Thursday, July 26th, the bottle service for breakfast edition. I'm Hannah Rosen, a host of NPR's Invisibilia, and in the New York studios, we have the great June Thomas, Senior Managing Producer of Slate Podcast Network. Hi, June. Hey, Hannah. And Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hi, Noreen. Hi, Hannah. Thank you all who came to our live show. I'm sorry I missed it, but I listened to it, and it was fantastic. June, you were fantastic. It was a really fun show. As were Christina and Verlin. Yeah, it was fun. It was, a, it was a nice vibe. That's a really great venue, which I'd never been to before, the Hamilton in Washington, D.C. we got to go there again. Yes, I have seen many a thing at the Hamilton. And also, thank you to all who send us your plane stories from our last show. That is the last show the three of us did. They were hilarious. Like, I just, it's so awesome what happens on airplanes and trains. And my personal favorite was someone who was chatted up about a Gerard Butler convention. Now, June, what is your familiarity with the Scottish actor Gerard Butler? And who ever knew that there was such a thing as like an entire convention dedicated to him? I am embarrassed to say that for many years I was a slight fan because I thought he was Welsh. (laughs) And that was the only reason, but just because I have a, like a, you know, ancient connection with the, with the Welsh. And I, and so I, I, I liked him. And then I found out he was Scottish. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm jettisoning him now. He's a bit carby. But I mean, Carby, uh, Carby. <laughs> what does that mean? He's got a carb face. Come on, you know what it means. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he, you know, I like that he, ta- he liked that he takes the the chance to sing. You know, and I can see, you know, he's he's a bulky guy. He's a Liam Neeson type. I can see why some women would find him attractive. He, I uh, maybe I do not know who Gerard Butler is. I thought he was like sort of a mid aughts rom com generic yeah. hunk. Yeah, no, he is. But I think he also has a, like he could be an action star. Like uh-huh. he has that kind of. He has, yeah. he has that little bit steroid. of heft to him. Yeah. I think it's a steroid look, not carbs. Wasn't he in the 300 as well? Like he's got that. I mean, I know that was kind that of. is not a movie that was marketed to me and I avoided it. <laughs> anyway. The... Wait, but a convention? Yeah, I know. I wow. love that. So the, so it's just to give some background. This letter was from a woman who was heading to a Gerard Butler convention and was telling um, her seatmate who wrote to us that her daughter was really upset about her complete obsession with Gerard Butler and how much money she had spent. But she also said that the woman told her that she had lost like 30 pounds in order to go to the convention, which seemed <laughs> like great, but like, what what's going to happen at the convention? Like great motivation, like fantastic. I got, I got no issues. <laughs> well, if the woman who went to the convention or any woman who went to the convention is listening, please tell us what happened. Yeah. All right. Our topics. On to our topics. First, we're going to talk about Maria Butina and the sexy spy trope. Second, the macho tropes and the Trump-Putin dynamic and how we talk about it. And finally, Refinery29's Money Diaries, women, their hard-earned money, and the pleasure of mocking millennial women. And then in our Slate Plus segment, June, what are we talking about? In our Slate Plus segment, we will be, well, I'm just going to project here. I think we'll be just being jealous of how cheap men's haircuts are. And we'll be asking if it is sexist. And if you want to hear those Slate Plus segments, you can go to slate.com slash the waves plus and sign up. Maria Butina is a Russian woman charged in federal court this month with acting as an unregistered agent of her government. 
which is legal speak for a spy. She was a student, or maybe posed at a student at AU, and befriended people at the NRA and on the right generally. She was funded by Russian billionaires, and stylistically, she checks a lot of boxes for Lady Spy in a Cold War movie about a sexy lady spy. She has flowing red hair, poses with guns, sleeps with, or offers to sleep with men she needs things from, according to the indictment. So we discuss our fascination with sexy spies and how it might cloud our vision. Um which we're just perpetuating here. But June, why don't you just set us up with some biography? Like, where is she from? And sort of how did she sell herself to the American right? I will certainly do that. But before I do, I just want to challenge one thing. I'm not sure that being an unregistered foreign agent is t- is always code for spy. It really is sometimes that people are earning money for doing the bidding of foreign governments and not registering as lobbyists. Is this an admission, June? (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) But, uh, you know, often it's Americans who are taking money from uh, creepy foreign governments and not disclosing that. But uh, in this case, she really does seem to tick all the boxes for what we typically call of what we typically label spy-like behavior. Maria Butina is a 29-year-old Russian. She was born in Siberia. She has this amazing red hair. So this leads to her often being called a Siberian redhead, uh, which, <laughs> you know, like, let's be a little bit more imaginative, people. She moved to Moscow at the age of 21, and she was clearly um, kind of, at least from the way that the biography has been presented to us, she was kind of an entrepreneurial type. Apparently, she started an advertising agency. She uh, wanted to start a furniture company. You know, she had these, she she was an entrepreneurial type. And then she apparently um, developed an interest in uh, guns and started an organization in Russia that uh, was eventually called the Right to Bear Arms. And this is an advocacy organization uh, dedicated to to making it possible for Russians to be the owners of guns. And uh, she gained the attention of some members of the NRA and started a kind of a, you know, a, a sister relationship in a way between her organization and the NRA. Uh, apparently members of the NRA would come to the right to arms conventions in Russia, these right to arms people. It was, seems mostly to have been her and a Russian politician called Alexander Torshin, who was a former member of the Russian Senate, but also now is a is a highly placed banker in, in Russia. They would come to the NRA convention. I had no consciousness of this kind of international cooperation among gun rights groups. And at these conventions, she came to certain people's attention. And when I say people, I, of course, mean men. And she seems to have developed some connections uh, with members of the NRA, who often are also GOP operatives, uh, particularly one guy in North, in South Dakota. Sorry, I got my Dakotas mixed up for a second there. And eventually she can't, she can't got a student visa to do a graduate program at American University in D.C. And she has been kind of all over the U.S. She was she spoke at uh, she asked Trump a question at a 2015 Trump rally. So she it's like June, what you described is just a woman coming from. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, how is that? What is the evidence that she's a spy? Because what you described is as someone who's an activist in Russia, who's here as a student, who is sincerely interested in gun rights and therefore has, you know, naturally made an alliance with the American gun rights movement right. because there isn't such an activist movement in Russia. And so why what's the evidence that she is actually a spy? 
Well, we haven't seen a lot of evidence, I should say. And the the identity that you posited could well just be absolutely true. She may well be that person. She may well be a person who has a sincere interest in gun rights and in the furtherance of her beliefs has made some alliances with other international gun rights advocates. However, she first of all, let us just note that in Russia, it is really not uh, people who take positions that are uh, let us just say, against uh, the government or against the wishes of the government, are generally squashed. This woman who in um, has been quoted as saying bad things about Putin has apparently flourished, been given visas, you know, has there's there there appear to be, especially through Alexander Torshin, connections with the Russian regime and with the FSB. And uh, apparently in these filings, when she was indicted, the FBI have found kind of conversations of her talking about uh, with other Russians the kind of connections that she's made. Trump, uh, Donald Trump, that is our president, before he was president, of course, as a somebody who was uh, pitching himself as a Republican, made appearances at the NRA. She tried to connect with him there. He did not meet with her, but she did meet with Donald Trump Jr. So there are, and also there's some suggestion in the in the indictment that this Russian group gave money to the NRA and the NRA spent officially $30 million electing Trump. But uh, according to some people, it might be as much as $70 million. So there's a suggestion, it's merely a suggestion at this point, we have not seen evidence that her group and uh, other Russian forces kind of used her and used her connections with the NRA to make contributions to the NRA and maybe in these trips to Moscow to get compromising material on members of the NRA. So, okay, but that's like totally why we're interested in her, right? Exactly. It's not, I mean, part of it's the, you know, the Trump Russia entanglement, which everyone is obsessed with, but it's also the idea that she's a honeypot, right? Mm -hmm. Like that she supposedly entered into this relationship with this uh, South Dakotan, you know, Republican operative, Mr. Erickson, like, just totally to for his connections that she had sex not for money but for country and you know she's continuing in a like long tradition nice phrase noreen <laughs> sex for country i'm available she's... for branding if you need me <laughs> fsb yes. um but you know so so she um i think that's part of why she's captured us right because she is the sequel to this woman, the most recent Russian spy that we were all fascinated by was this woman, Anna Chapman, in 2010, who had infiltrated New York real estate circles, who sort of like they, she didn't look like she could be Maria Butina's sister, but they had the same hair colorist. Maybe it's this like unnatural red that seems to be uh, <laughs> handed out <laughs> to people when they are asked to be Russian honeypots. And so she like taps into some kind of part of our brain that is just fascinated by the idea that not only are there spies among us, but Russian spies in particular, when they are women, have no problem with, you know, sleeping with men or, you know, maybe women or whatever, sleeping with people in order to, like, get the job done. And I think we see it as some kind of otherness, right? Like, our American spies do a lot of bad things, but they would never do that, you know? I think that's sort of why we're so, like, obsessed with the sexy Russian spies among us. You know, you don't hear a lot of, like, uh, Ethel Rosenberg, like, you know, pop boiler fiction. It's like, 
the the hot young redhead Russian spy is going to get the tabloid headlines. That's interesting because there is actually a place called Gold Digger School in Russia in which they <laughs> do actually legitimately teach women how to be gold diggers. It's like a class and it has a curriculum and everything. So it is a different sense. Like we would call that, you know, semi-prostitution and possible sexual assault setting people up for it. <laughs> and they would say it's like, you know, a kind of power play. It's like a completely different vocabulary. So I think you're totally totally right about that. But also, I mean, this is funny because I, I note as June was talking, my own resistance is because it's so much like a movie. Like there are times yeah. in foreign policy, like the Thai cave, you know, where it's like just a movie script. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so this is just a movie script, you know, like down to the very, like he did her homework for him. Yes, I know. I love that detail, which is always brought up. So Erickson. Uh, this guy with whom she's been connected. Every single report talks about when she was uh, at American University in this graduate program that he would do her homework. Like, we love that detail somehow. It's amazing. It's like the most whipped thing you could imagine. (laughs) But it's also very weak evidence that she wasn't really a student. It feels like that's the evidence they have that she wasn't legit a student is because he did her homework for for her and she complained about him and he was older than she was. I mean, possibly true. It's just... You yeah. know, it's just really, really funny. I know, we um, love that. But, but the whole, and then her flirty exchanges with Torchin and the other, you know, the other sort of Russian oligarchs who were or weren't funding her are really funny. Um, and I have to mention this, like, food insta. That oh, yeah, had. yeah. This is so oh, funny. Oh, my God. Wait, it's can, so funny. Can you explain it? Oh, yeah. It's just a random detail that she kept this Instagram, thank you, Alex, for the research, which had, like, you know, her favorite foods. But it it was, like, boiled chicken. The boiled chicken was amazing. Um, it's really I, ugly. It's, like, a really poorly really lit ugly. Instagram. She's eating, like, not, not food. You know, you, it's not an aspirational. It's, it's like, Soviet food. Like, it's a Soviet <laughs> yes. boiled chicken, to be frank with you. Well, and, and let's just, I mean, so it, I think that, the you know, that's one detail that, just points out, as you've said, Hannah, that we're, or as you've both said, that we're just glomming onto this because, you know, ever since the days of Boris and Natasha, there's been, and, you know, let's not forget the Americans, there's been this notion of, you know, these these Russian women who will do anything uh, because their communist government tells them to. You know, now it might be their united Russia government tells them to, but it's basically the same trope. And she wasn't, she wasn't, like, she was a very unsubtle kind of spy. I mean, since I just mentioned the Americans, about which I did a podcast about every episode of the last three seasons, check it out, find it on uh, Apple Podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I would always be sort of saying to the showrunners, like, how is it that, you know, Philip and Elizabeth can be so modest that they can't take credit for what they've done because they have to stay a secret? And the showrunner, Joe, Joe Weisberg, who was himself in the CIA, would just look at me and like, because that's not how it works. Mm-hmm. But she is not that kind of spy. She is not like a se- ultra secret undercover person who is trying to get information. She is a totally above board posing with guns on social media, you know, asking questions of Trump that are televised and that will then be played at every time she's mentioned. But her, I guess, if we do concede that she's a spy or is, is working for the Russian government, that she is trying to advance an agenda. And it's not necessarily about gun rights because, I mean, that's the last thing that America needs help with. It is 
just about gaining influence. Yeah, I mean, I think we need to adjust our our vision of what a spy does and what spying is. I'm sure there are traditional spies who do what spies and the Americans do, but for the most part, it's cultural influence. That's what spying is. It's like changing narratives in other countries. So if, you know, the what are the Russians trying to do, like change the cultural narrative and, you know, create norms that aren't already here. And so if that's what she was doing, it's genius. Mm -hmm. You know, she did an absolute genius job of turning the party of Reagan and the NRA particularly pro-Russian. That's like an amazing feat if she did actually pull that off. You know, they're so Cold War, those old dudes with guns. And she just managed to like create this sort of beautiful, glamorous alliance. It's just brilliant. Yeah. If it's true. Well, and I mean, not single handedly, but she was part of what seems like a concerted effort to, you know, draw a strongman politics together. Yeah. Did you mm-hmm. guys, um, did you see the recent movie Red Sparrow starring Jennifer Lawrence? I did not. I recently yeah. watched it on a plane. It's, it's about a Russian honeypot spy. She does not have red hair, unfortunately. Oh. But, um, but it, I mean, and it's like, I can't say that it's a good movie, but I found it to be entertaining in a sort of like James Bondy, lesser James Bond kind of way. But it, it focuses on something called Sparrow School, which is essentially like, you know, high end prostitute slash spy training that these women go through. And it turns out that that is actually a real thing, at least according to the CIA, that the Russians did during the Soviet Union. They It is now supposedly defunct but like that was a you know real thing and and the movie is total american propaganda like i had a great time you know but (laughs) like fully like the 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 worst thing that the russians do is that they ask jennifer lawrence's character to sleep with men and that is like sort of the original sin and and you know america is put up as this place where we would never ask anyone to do that and it is true that as far as i can tell that is not something that the clandestine services would ask an american man or woman to do but you know when you're talking about cultural influence and how we do it hana like America still does it through Hollywood, right? Through this narrative that we're still pushing. And actually, like, you know, the the U.S. versus Russia narrative has been out of fashion for a little while. It's been these, you know, U.S. versus China, U.S. versus the Middle East kind of things. But that is sort of how we exert that kind of like subtle cultural influence. We are the morally righteous ones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah. Right. Can I just say one other thing that is really, as we were doing our reading for this topic, something that really jumped out at me is how much, like the encouragement that Maria Butina got to come to the US, the help that she got from these NRA dudes to get her student visa. Like, it's clear that for a party that for the moment is in just like paroxysms of anti-immigration fever, if you just have a few pictures taken with you with some guns, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, start a what is almost certainly a Potemkin uh, organization uh, for gun rights, you will be, at, you know, the doors will open up to you, uh, you know, with with a, with a fanfare playing. I mean, it's it's appalling. Well, the guy she was sleeping with didn't exactly seem like the brightest. I mean, he was, he, you know, he'd gone to Yale and all that, but he'd also been like a buddy of Jack Abramoff. He had, he had, um, he had been behind the media campaign to like rehabilitate. Who's the guy who got his penis chopped off by his wife? Uh, Bobby. Yeah, 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 Bobby. Like he, he was, he just had a sort of weird greatest hits of yes. pop culture, and you, you sort of thought, yeah, he would be an easy mark, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, June, send that message to the border. All the people <laughs> trying to cross into the country. <laughs> Sexy gun photos. Dye your hair red. (laughs) Take some sexy gun photos.
For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, so part two of the Russia Special Waves edition, <laughs> macho tropes in the Russia-Putin dynamic. Okay, so last week went down what was widely considered a totally embarrassing press conference between Trump and Putin. But what was interesting was the lens through which it was considered embarrassing in so many headlines and comments. What you read between the lines, Trump had been unmanned. He was weak, submissive, and weirdly like a gay man in love with Putin, according to the New York Times video. That was the weirdest one. Mm. And to me, what was weird about it is it was as if we all saw the world suddenly through the Trumpian lens. Mm. Like, who is the bigger man? Mm-hmm. Um so just to set the stage for a minute, uh, this started because, you know, a few things he said during the press conference. One one was whether he would warn Putin not to – somebody asked him a question. Would he warn Putin not to do what he did in 2016? And Trump says he had talked to his own intelligence officials. And Putin said, it's not Russia. I don't see any reason why it would be. And then unfolded a whole week of like, what did Trump say? Did he really say that? But one got the sense that he was bending over backwards to – basically excuse Putin. And the photo of Putin that was widely shared, it looked like the way it was shot, it was like a photo of Putin essentially tapping him on the head (laughs) condescendingly. So I guess my question to you guys is why do you think, you know, the sort of who's the bigger man trope was so prevalent in this? Well, there's actually kind of, it seems like a fascinating history of, of this. U.S. foreign policy is based on, you know, military might, right? And the military in probably every country, but certainly in the United States, has these just like hyper-masculine, aggressive tropes that are just pounded into people from the beginning. And that is the framework through which you see the world. And so even, you know, even um, foreign policy critics who don't necessarily come out of the military kind of perpetuate that, like that, you know, that like who's the bigger man is kind of a metaphor for who's up in the world. And so I think it kind of follows from there, right? But it's so weird to me. It's like a weird language blind spot. We don't talk that way anymore. You know, we're so policing of our language, except in this one area. I thought that New York Times video was insane. Well, did the New York Times make it or did they just tweet it? I think, I mean, the thing that was more insane to me was Frank Bruni's column. He had this weird extended, like, imaginary, like, bodice ripper of, like, Trump having a crush on Putin and Bruni is himself gay and has written about gay rights. And it was like so like equating it was it was adding sexuality into a dynamic where there does not seem to be any and then sort of like making it clear that being like or not making it clear, but but sort of subtextually implying that like his weird gay crush on Putin made Trump less of a man. It was such a strange document of someone's inner monologue. Exactly. There's there is a long history. I mean, a long history ever since Trump and Putin have been on the scene together. There have been these images of, you know, that are weirdly sexualized. And let's just say completely and utterly homophobic, even when they come from gay people that I think started, especially the imagery got very strong when uh, the Putin crackdown on gay rights in Russia started. And then we started to see these images of Putin in makeup, uh, which, you know, just came from liberals, you know, but I think it's like some, it's a, 
is a in, sometimes internally and sometimes just like something that we've all grown up marinated in, uh, certainly if you're of a certain age, of just what what's the worst thing you can do to somebody is like, especially somebody who's being homophobic is suggest that they themselves are gay. And it's all just, it's, and so many people in the last week especially have been like, do you think it's homophobic? Like, yes, I do. How mm-hmm. can you not? Um, which is not to say that the people who themselves repeat it are necessarily. I just think that we all grew up, um, you know, with that kind of, you know, gay men are weak, uh, gay kissing is gross. Uh, you know, some there's all this people love to comment about, you know, basically that Trump must be a bottom who's going to get pounded by, you know, which is also just like bottom phobic. There's just so much kind of unexamined, but clearly, you know, hidden somewhere in the back of people's brains, homophobic impulse involved in this in this kind of I want to hurt these guys by calling them gay kind of storytelling. I think it's even a broader lens. That is for sure true. But also the entire way we talk about foreign policy is unexamined. Like yeah. projections we just of power. The word. It's projections of power and power as manliness. And like we really don't do that anymore in a lot of different realms. Like we've we've gotten better about language and what language means. But in foreign policy, we speak with like no precision. So we talk about a muscular foreign policy when what we mean is a warlike foreign policy. Like there's no precision in it, right? Like sometimes the strong thing to do is not to go to war or not to be bellicose. And that's the difficult decision. And sometimes the difficult decision is to do a targeted strike. But we don't talk about it in any kind of specific way. What we mean by muscular foreign policy, which was a word that Hillary Clinton always wanted used in reference to her to sort of override the kind of soft woman stereotype, is willing to declare war. And so essentially we're we're equating like willing to declare war with muscular with good. That's the good foreign policy. And if you're not in that camp, if you're somehow like, you know, conciliatory, then you're gay or weak or not muscular. And and it's like, it's so weird to me how the press spits that back out. You know, mm-hmm. it's just it's just bizarre. And this was a case where it just went like totally overboard because we like to make fun of Trump. This is like the conversation we have about Sarah Huckabee Sanders, how mm-hmm. like in the realm of Trump, we just we just like forget all other rules about gender stereotyping and everything like that, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and I think also what's interesting to watch play out here is that you're seeing in Trump's actions the sort of difference between machismo and strength, right? Like even if you even if you sort of accept the framework that like, uh, you know, a muscular foreign policy is a manly foreign policy is a good foreign policy, right? Like he's not doing that. He's he's sort of like in general throughout his presidency, he's projected this like hollow machismo, right? Like it's all of the bad parts of masculine of hyper masculinity, you know, like he's like sleeping with the Playboy bunnies and like doing all of, you know, and like talking a big game about women and about what he's going to do to Kim Jong Un and talking about how he has a bigger button and all this like mm-hmm like the worst kind of masculine posturing and then that's revealed to be just like a screen and behind it he's sort of weak and scared and so so maybe in some small way and you can watch like you know sort of old school republicans getting very upset at like how weak he's he is and like so maybe in some way this will help uncouple like strength and sort of masculine stereotypes as he like he's just like showing us what a lie that is i think there's also yeah, another, I'm, sorry go ahead Anna. no i was just going to say what should we have called this 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 should be a dishonest press conference or an incoherent press conference right. it's not weak and gay you know it has nothing to do with that no 
And I mean, I do think there is another uh, sort of trope that that it pulls into, like because there are so many, you know, rumors about him being compromised somehow about, you know, the P-tip or other compromat. And that as another, you know, pernicious stereotype about gays as being deceivers, people, you know, snakes in the whatever, in our midst, people who cuckoos in the nest, whatever, you know, people who pretend to be one thing and actually another. And I think that that's another reason that it kind of mm. blossoms up. But it's also, again, like, don't do that. That is that yeah. is an, that's an old, worn out, tired stereotype that we can let go of. Yeah, I guess I, I have no problem with it being described as a weak press conference. I think, you know, weak can mean a lot of things, right? Like weak doesn't necessarily have to mean like, I, you know, I didn't I didn't overpower him. It, it means like, you know, whatever his actions are, like whatever the explanation is for the way that he's acting towards Russia, it is on some level, I think, like a, a um, bad. Yeah, bad. <laughs> but but also like a, a, um, he, he's not necessarily in control here or if he's, a you yeah. know, and so that is in some sense weak. And I guess like weak doesn't necessarily have to be a gendered thing. Right. I exactly. That is the thing. Like we're imposing like it's. He's he is weak, and yet why are we associating that with a sort of effeminate or or feminine aspect? This it's, mm-hmm. there's, it's not relevant at all. But yeah, yeah, make this then a man. We'll make it more specific. It's like a manifesto to remove the gender implications from language around foreign policy. Like it's not. You know, it, it's not mu- muscular is not an appropriate word like bellicose is an appropriate word mm-hmm. or warlike or weak is fine. But like not things that have gender implications, like no, no gay uh, insinuations, you know, no, pass- I don't know, passivity. I'm not sure about passivity. Mm. We would just examine the language a little better around totally. how you describe people and their foreign policy poses. What do you think his like weird combination of like machismo and you know sort of inability to stand up to what do you what do you think that's going to do to the GOP's vision of itself as sort of like the daddy party you know like <laughs> how is that going to affect them going forward are they just going to double down on these masculine stereotypes are they going to like reframe them you know is it it feels to me like the GOP is putting up with a lot of what you know we even just in the however many minutes we've been talking we've talked about several things that used to be anathema mm-hmm. to the Republican party that they seem to be embracing not because i don't think they have any particular love for trump but because he can you know he's he has given them two supreme court justices uh and you know i think it's a it's a very transactional like you give me this and i will put up with that that's a really interesting question, though, because it's it's like the um, if the if the Democrats start putting up war veterans as candidates, you know, soldiers, ex-soldiers, military people as candidates, because what what you want, what you think that they would do is is kind of shift the hollow masculinity into a kind of honor of valor, mm-hmm. you know, married man, old fashioned manly virtues. Party. Yeah. yeah, but also, yeah, manly virtues. We've also seen many war veterans who are women. I mean, Senator Tammy Duckworth, who's a war veteran who lost her legs. I mean, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, I think, again, that's a way of taking gender uh, out of you know talk of war, like who could be if we're ta- if we're going to sort of lean into that war and and uh, military and service and valor? It doesn't have to be a dude. I mean, it doesn't have to be, but I think people still respond in a different like Jason Kander. 
the, you know, the rising Democratic star from where is it? Missouri became a star on the basis of a video in which he took apart his gun and put it back together blindfolded. And like there's really no other basis for him becoming a star other than the Democrats were excited to be like, we have someone who knows guns in the military, too. I I mean, I was actually sort of turned off by that. But like, I think that's sort of a telling uh, situation that that he was the one who was glommed onto in that way. All right, so that is something we will keep our eye on. How are the Republicans going to redefine manhood? Answers coming for you in the next year. <laughs> Answers on a postcard, please. Too. No. By the way, listeners, we are ending our Twitter account at xxgabfest for obvious reasons. For news and updates about the show, you should follow at Slate Podcasts. That's where they'll go out. And if you want to tweet to us. Truly, the best way to do it is to tweet to us individually at Noreen Malone, at June Thomas, or at Hannah Rosen, or you can do hashtag the waves and we will look that up. Our next topic, the Refinery29 Money Diaries. This is a column that's been running since 2016. It's created a little world in which women chronicle specifics on how they spend their hard-earned money. And the column has always inspired judgy, judgy comments about waste and privilege and decisions and all sorts of other things. And then came a recent one, which really, really, really irritated people. Although whether it was real or not, I'm not sure. Noreen, you want to describe some of the details in this truly ridiculous column, or maybe it's not ridiculous. I don't know. Some people really liked it, of a 21-year-old marketing intern. So this young woman was uh, living in New York, is living in New York on what she represents as a $25 an hour HR marketing salary. But in addition, she gets, I believe, her $2,100 rent paid by her parents. By the way, she splits a $4,000 one-bedroom with a roommate, which is just like a number of poor real estate decisions that I would like to talk her through if I got the opportunity. (laughs) But uh, so there's that. And then her parents pay all sorts of things like her cell phone bill and uh, et cetera, et cetera. She also, which she does not include as part of her income, by the way, all this additional money. They also, I think, give her an $800 a week allowance. And then my favorite part is- Is it a week or a month? Oh, it might be a month. I'm sorry. A week would be incredible. (laughs) She gets an additional $300 a month from her grandparent, which she uh, puts in parentheses, hashtag blessed. So she is, and and then, so that's one half of the judgment that, that people weighed down upon her, that she was, you know, a child of privilege. And then the other half is, I think, people found the way she spent her money to be sort of, uh, you know, an object of derision. She was, like, making a lot of avocado toast and, like, talking about how spending six ninety nine on the cold brew was saying, saving her money, ultimately. And she went out to the Hamptons and drank rosé on a boat. And, like, her... The $23 wrap. <laughs> yeah. And I think she said, like, Hamptons prices... Um, so, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) you know, you know, we all face that challenge, Hanson's prices. So I think people were judging her on a couple of different levels, you know, the, the, you know, like spoiled brat kind of level. And then just the, um, there was almost like a taste level judgment going on that she was, you know, she was described as like the height of millennial privilege and her, and her spending habits did seem to be that. Although I will point out, as a millennial, she's technically Gen Z, I believe. <laughs> so it's not ours. She's not ours. What's interesting to me... Do you think it was real, Noreen? I mean, just was it... It seemed yeah. so parodic, like between Equinox, the specifics of her workouts, the number of times avocado was mentioned, the kind of checks from granddaddy, the rosé. I mean, the whole thing seemed like, you know, it was too check the box. Like, is that a real person? Well... Have you spent a lot of time around NYU undergrads? <laughs> I, I, 
observe them across the city. And I, I do. I mean, I'm sort of joking. I mean, they are sort of spoiled. But also there is a way that people who do these diaries and there all, are all kinds on the Internet. I will read any of them, by the way. There are like food diaries. There are skincare diaries. Sex diaries. Sex diaries. Although the sex diaries are just depressing and a little boring to me. But um, I think that people have a performance aspect to this where they like you know, want to look a certain way. And a 21-year-old's idea of cool might be different than yours or mine. And I think, and 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 like her, the way she lives her life aspirationally, what she thinks is cool might be different. So I sort of do believe it. I think like, you know, yeah, she's she's like a little, little victim of the culture, just eating her avocado toast. But it's also like, I was thinking if I put my spending diary out there, I might be ashamed too, like in a slightly different way. But one thing I was struck by in hers in particular, she actually didn't spend a lot of money on clothes or beauty. Right, right. Which is something we tend to usually judge women for. Well, it made, I mean, I obviously am in a different time of life than her, but I piss away so much more money, but not on the same kinds of things. And I actually think that my things are less excusable. I mean, I'm not in debt, so it's okay. I can spend my money on what I want. But it, yeah, I actually didn't. Although clearly another part of these diaries is, you know, waiting to be judged by the commenters. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I actually, I mean, for all of the $23 wraps, her overall spending was not totally bananas. And I'm sorry, like... If my parents were going to give me a ton of money, I'd take it. I mean, they don't have any, so they never gave me any. But, like, I don't really have a problem with that. Yeah, certainly the blame lies with the parents who have yeah. not, well, you know, yeah. it, are on one hand really setting her up for success and on the other hand are really risking, like, you know, not. Yeah. Okay, her. but judgy, judgy, how are you supposed to live <laughs> in New York on, like, an intern salary if you're trying to make it? I don't know. I mean, my parents didn't give me money either, but, like, if... If if your parents have money and you're trying to make it in New York and you're an intern, is it super crazy for them to give you money for a couple of years? Not at all. Lena Dunham. <laughs> well, and also I must say though, twenty five dollars an hour for an internship seems really generous. Yeah, I <laughs> I did the math from my first job at Slate, and I, which was not an internship, and I'm pretty sure it, like she's coming ahead, and it, granted yeah. that was like ten years ago or whatever. But yeah. yeah, I think you could make it in New York on twenty five dollars an hour, even like with you know as a bougie spoiled white girl. What? But so I'm not the part that I'm interested in. This is like okay, yeah, we're we're all judgy about the way people spend money. And Gia Tolentino had a really smart column, I thought, in The New Yorker about how this is actually anxiety over inequality um, in this case in particular. But but I'm interested in like the general phenomenon of the money diaries and why women are so interested in how other women spend their money. And I'm fascinated by it. I think about my own spending a lot. And I think it's maybe something to do with the fact that actually we are not – that far into a world in which women have their own money that they spend that is not in some way tied to a husband or fa- I mean I guess in this case she is it is tied to like her parents money but women were only allowed to get credit cards in what the 70s so like the the model for how you spend your money as a woman that's not just like an ornamental kind of wealth where you're showing off for a man what kind of like living he can provide for his woman is we're actually like pretty new into that and I think you know, people are all figuring that out. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why I initially thought the column was actually a brilliant idea or a sort of this like mildly revolutionary idea. It's just kind of interesting, this idea that like we're going to hash out 
the correct way to spend money. You know, we're going to hash out, like, we're going to norm female bookkeeping, accountability, getting started in life, like values around money. I mean, because it's women, just like the mommy sites, it's like so judgy, judgy yeah. that it's just like it breaks my heart sometimes. Although sometimes I think like, oh, that's just the sisterhood. Like it's all kind of understood that like we're judging each other, but we're also supporting each other. I'm not sure about it because some sometimes it's really, really mean. Um, but there is you're right. There is something cool about the column for that reason. You know, if they take it all the way, I don't know if they've had one on like planning retirement, you know, someone who's like at the back end of this. Mm-hmm. I think it's like, did I make enough money? And like, do I have enough money right. to support myself? And, you know, because that would be interesting. That would be totally interesting because part of the fascination with this, at least for me, it's like, I don't know. I mean, like, like you, June, I spend money on dumb things, but I mostly think I'm okay. But like, right. Am I? I don't know. Like, like, am I really spending too much on like books from Amazon or like stupid skin stuff or whatever? And part of it, the fun or the dark fun is like looking at what other women do relative to their salary and how they like figure out and and how they figure out things like rent. Right. So they they show you like, okay, this person splits rent with their husband. This person's car payments are paid by their parents. I appreciate it on that on that level. I really do. I mean, and a part of it, too. I mean, another thing that's relevant to this moment is that we are currently, and I don't think we always will be, or I kind of hope we won't always will be, we're in a moment of asceticism. I mean, asceticism is the new jogging, you know, feeling that people are being too profligate, are are spending their money unwisely because they're wasting it. Like at another time, I think we might be, you kind of applaud somebody, you know, giving themselves over to pleasure. And, you know, we know we currently think that like spending money on a gym and maybe let's not spend too much. Maybe don't go to the fanciest gym, but like gym, that's good. Eating healthily is good. Mm-hmm. Maybe don't spend too much money. Like we're in this moment of discipline and, you know, which I'm not sure we'll ever get out of that. But like that's also a little bit of a fashion thing. It represents a weird turn, maybe, because for so many years there was this discussion of like, Unlike the boomers who like, you know, bought their crazy speakers and their two car garages like, you know, people now are going to spend money on experiences. And she did that. And like maybe there's something about having like, the you know, your everyday breakfast doesn't necessarily need to be an experience. But that's sort of (laughs) like how people have begun to think about it. And maybe something about having that kind of mindset written down in like the cold, hard diary of it would like drew people up. Although I think a lot of people judging this online do not spend all that differently themselves. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I think it is. I think what you said, June, that it's an, there's an age of asceticism, but it's a fake, expensive lifestyle asceticism. Yes. Like we've talked about yes. with beauty products yes. or certain types of food. And it's an asceticism which we don't fully openly acknowledge is only available to the upper class. And Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. it's not real asceticism. Like there was that one column, it was mentioned in a New Yorker story, I hadn't read it initially, that everybody admired, which was a woman in Alaska who did, you know, canning Mm -hmm. and was like a maker type. So like that's our kind of ideal of who we are. Like we do things by hand and we live aesthetically, but we don't. But that that isn't actually the variety of asceticism that we practice day to day. The variety of asceticism that we practice is avocado toast and, you know, really expensive but very organic face cream products. And so I think I think maybe this particular column just like exposed that gap and made us feel bad. And so we took it out. But the face cream thing, like when people spend 
at least in the like Twitter discourse or whatever, which may or may not stand for anything, people spending tons of money on expensive face creams is celebrated as like proper self-care, whereas this girl spending her money on Equinox or whatever isn't. It's like there's something weird going on there because if you, you know, criticize someone for caring too much about their beauty routine, you are like like attacking her right to exist as a woman and like navigate the world. But then also like, you know, hashtag capitalism is bad. I I don't know what's going on. People are like panicking. People want to consume, (laughs) but they know it's bad. They are trapped between like... They're trapped between a lot of things. And I also, I mean, one of the reasons that um, people got mad that that originally the contributions from her parents and family members weren't acknowledged was that some of the things that do cause us all a lot of uh, stress, like paying for health insurance, uh, you know, education costs, rent, rent, were not just having to be factored in. So, yeah, I'm jealous of that, too. Like, you know, and that clearly like that's a serious problem in this country. Right. Whereas like whether you can get a nice, you know, egg white and avocado wrap is really not that much of a stressor. Yeah. If I didn't have to pay rent, man, I would be going to town. My money diary would be disgusting. Just know that. You'd be like a $47 wrap, $80 (laughs) wrap. With gold on it. Bottle service for breakfast. (laughs) I got to say, I commend these women. I would not want to see, I would not want to write down my spending for myself, much less for like a lot of other people. I just prefer to keep my blind spots. Like not that I'm like really profligate or anything. I just don't, like seeing it would do something to me. Like seeing it laid out on a spreadsheet, it just would cause me all kinds of agita. I've been been doing that. I've been doing like mint in a very aggressive way lately and- Man, it's like it's really looking in the mirror. It's like it, it's it's good actually. I think we should all do it. Maybe. All right. Well, listeners, if any of you have done this exercise even for yourself and have learned anything from writing down what you spend day to day, or if you want to do it, just do it. Just do it for the next day and let us know what it felt like. We would love to hear about it at thewaves at slate dot com. All right. Recommendations. Noreen, you go first. So I'm recommending a book that I think other Slate podcasts have recommended, but it's so good. I just I I'm obsessed with it. Killers of the Flower Moon by David Grant. Have you guys read this? I have not, although yeah. I've listened to a lot of interviews with it's it. A, it's a maybe you've already recommended it, Hannah, but it is a story about America's original sin, right? Stealing money from uh, Native Americans. And it reminds you how recent and far reaching actually that sin is. So it's the story of and it's also about the beginning of the FBI. And so it's a story about an Indian or a uh, David Grant uses the term Indian, so I will use it here. An Indian tribe in Oklahoma, the Osage Indians, who um, were kicked out of their land and then asked for, when they moved to another plot of land, asked for the mineral and gas rights to be retained. Those turned out to be incredibly valuable. And then they became sort of the wealthiest per capita people in the United States. They were famous for this. And then people from their tribe began dying. They were murdered. And so then this is about sort of the plot to murder and then cover up the murders of the Osage Indians. And it is just like an it's first of all, it's gripping. Second of all, it's like an incredible feat of research and journalism and storytelling. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Yeah, that's a great book. It's a really great book in all the ways that you say. I'm going to recommend movies. It's the last week that my son was in sleepaway camp. And so I saw a couple of movies, um, (laughs) both of which were excellent. I was so moved by Eighth Grade. Have you guys seen Eighth Grade? Not yet. Mm -hmm. Oh, Elsie Fisher. I I don't think I've seen a performance 
quite that embodied and perfect in a really long time. Can you say um, something about that sh- movie? Because I feel yeah. like I've heard the name, people raving about it, but I don't actually know what it's about. Okay, so it's it's written by comedian Bo Burnham, and it's literally about the last week of eighth grade for this somewhat awkward very awkward, we could say, girl. And she makes, some of it is about the kind of gap between her YouTube life. She makes these really sort of endearing, sweet YouTube videos. And then she lives her life. And the YouTube videos are like advice for other girls. And then, and then, um, and they're not obnoxious. They're like really dear. Uh, But then she goes into the, to the actual school and lives her actual life, which is excruciating. And the movie, you know, it has that kind of everything in the outside world as a projection. So no other character, she's unbelievably fully realized, as is her father, but but nobody else is. Everybody else is kind of an eighth grade, you know, like a middle school projection. But that kind of works really well, because otherwise the movie would be excruciating because it's so, like, painful in some ways. But I just have to say, like, her her just kind of um, – her capturing of, of this character is unbelievable. It's just so amazing. It's, she's just so completely sort of um, – I'm just so inarticulate here, but it's just, she just is this person. I just thought it was an amazing performance, really. I just loved the movie. I was very, very moved by it. Now, I wouldn't see it if I was a teenager. Like, I actually recommended the teenagers around me not to see it because it's too close to the bone. It really is just too close to the bone. It's too excruciating if you are a teenager or a middle schooler. So uh, this recommendation is for grownups. The other thing I would say is Three Identical Strangers. Oh, yeah. Geez, between that and and um you know the Mr. Rogers documentary it's like the moment for documentaries that is like the like the David Grand book that's like an incredible piece of documentary journalism it's an amazing movie i'm not going to give anything else away about it but it's fabulous it's about these triplets and um, that's all i'm going to say and yeah. it's Noreen recommended good. it some weeks ago yeah you may not have oh then been, forget it yeah, no, 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 you, no i mean no, reco- no, you can yeah. second it yeah, it's yeah. a great movie okay. yeah yeah, okay. I second the recommendation that Noreen made. It's wonderful. Okay, June, what do you have? I am going to recommend the move, the other movie that I believe you saw this weekend, Mamma Mia, <laughs> uh, which, um, or <laughs> Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, uh, the second <laughs> Mamma Mia movie, uh, which takes the jukebox musical to an even sillier place. Actually, I think the plot on this one actually makes a little more sense, though that's like saying that you know, speaking two words of a foreign language is twice as much foreign language as speaking one word. Like, it's true, but it doesn't mean much. Um, it, That's good. It's uh, it's just so much fun. I, you know, when I, I was alive at the time of ABBA and I was I was completely contemptuous of them. I was like a rocket snob who thought their, their pop fripperies were nonsense. And now I long for them. And I just am so happy that I'm constantly, you know, humming their songs, having seen the movie. And it is absolutely transported. Like it takes right... You know, I don't want to be melodramatic about it, but this feels like a time when just having just a light, frothy escape to a sunny island where people are singing silly songs and also not slut shaming a woman who's apparently slept with three guys over the course of a week is great. And um, I also want to recommend the Slate Spoiler special that Dana Stevens and I recorded about it, which will be available on Friday. It's a big deal in my household. (laughs) It's so fun. It's so fun. (laughs) 
Yeah. The teens in my life, they love the Mamma Mia and ABBA <laughs> and Fernando. It's kind of amazing. I remember the moment when I was, we were taking a long car ride and we were so exhausted and it was like two in the morning. I think we were going to Pittsburgh just because we were bored. Um, we, seriously, we were just like, it was the dog days of summer and we were like, we have to go somewhere. So we took some friends. We went, we drove up to Pittsburgh. It's like two in the morning. We drive up to the hotel and right before we got to the hotel, I was just randomly throwing out music deliriously and I mentioned Fernando and <laughs> And we just listened to Fernando seven times. And then <laughs> since then, it's just been all ABBA all the time. Anyway. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's it's totally fun. June is correct. All right. Well, this week our show is produced by Jessamine Molly. And we have a new production assistant, Alex Barish. Welcome, Jessamine and Alex, for this week. If you have anything to say about the show, you can email us at thewavesatslate.com or tweet to us individually at June Thomas, at Noreen Malone, at Hannah Rosen. And you can use hashtag the waves. For June and Noreen, I'm Hannah Rosen. And we will talk to you again next week. <laughs> <laughs> 